All right. Hello. You, you do realize that the song we sang just before that is just smack out of Colossians, right? You sing that song and you've memorized a chunk of scripture. It's like 14 verses, right? How much is? How many? Oh, it's like four. Way less. But hey, four is better than zero. Where's Baker? Congrats, buddy. Reaching the dorms. You know, one of the things that, that I found inspiring about this is that this is totally generated by alum. So for those of you who are thinking about, you know, who are close to graduating and going to make, like, sweet, swanky jobs, you should think about, you know, I'd like to contribute to that scholarship. What if we could give out 10? What if we could give out 25? And what it could be is it could, it could cover the difference in cost between living on campus and off campus. It wouldn't be like a full ride, like we'll pay every, every penny, but we'll pay the difference of what it would cost you. If cost is what's keeping you off, come on. Go get rich. <laughs> so you can give it away. All right. Did you guys enjoy Dr. Craig last week? In, uh, when I was growing up in Kenya, the way we'd talk about guys like that, we'd say, what? That guy's a chop. It means he's like super smart if he's a chop. He is a brilliant dude. What I liked about that is that it seems like Jesus wants us to be thoughtful about what we believe rather than blindly following around, don't you think? Following Jesus means you turn your brain on, not off. Amen? We are a community that invites exploration of Jesus because we actually think that he speaks for himself, that his message is sound and open for public examination. That's what we believe. So, uh, let's see, the week before Dr. Craig... We started marinating in a particular letter in the New Testament. Anybody remember what it was? Hey, we sang about it too. You're all smart, like two weeks memory. Good work. Um, we're in Colossians, that's right. And the whole, Paul's whole aim in writing this letter to the Jesus followers in this small city of Colossae is to help young and therefore vulnerable, this young and therefore vulnerable community understand what it means to, to mature, to solidify in their faith, right? Because in the city of Colossae, very similar to the city of Bellingham, um, there are competing versions of what's true about the world, about humanity, about God, about spirituality. And it's not so much that these ideas are sort of competing with each other as truths. They're not not being sort of evaluated by their own merits and, and, and in comparison to each other. But more than in the Colossians, very much like us in Bellingham, in particular on the university campus at Western, they're tempted to kind of accept all of them as true enough. And so we end up being seduced along with the Colossians sometimes, I think, in our own culture, by this salad bar approach to truth. That every, every version of truth is all pretty good stuff. And therefore there's nothing wrong with sort of believing bits and pieces of different religions and spiritualities. So the question that we're asking all quarter, and the question that Paul is answering in his letter to the Colossians, is this. What does it look like to mature in Christ? What does it look like to grow up into a community that is solid, that is firm against cultural pressures to conform to this sort of salad bar approach to spirituality? Grabbing a bunch, whatever ingredients of your favorite stuff and piling it all together and calling that, yeah, this is truth. 
His first answer to that question, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, was to pray for this community, right? He, he invested heavily in praying towards the Colossian maturity. So we, we emphasized, as our own community, we emphasized the importance of praying together for our own growth, as well as praying for the mission that we're on as a community to make Jesus famous on this campus, for all the right reasons. And tonight, after sharing with the Colossian community how he's been praying for them, Paul sort of dives into the meat of this letter. So let's pray, and then we'll join him, okay? Jesus, thank you for the chance to gather. Um, Thank you for your company with us tonight. You are here with us. You are way ahead of us. You've already been stirring our minds um, towards the things that you want us to think about and be impacted by in the music, in, in, from, from this, these texts in your word. You are, you are ramped for what you have to say to us tonight. And so I just ask that you would tattoo things on our hearts that affect us for the rest of our lives, that as we pay attention to what Paul would say to a similar community as our own, that we would hear your voice in that and that we would celebrate who you are and what you've done for us, as Paul does in this text that is one of the most beautiful texts in the New Testament. So we praise you, Lord, and we are, we are eagerly anticipating what you have for us in this text. Amen. Amen. Now, if we keep in mind the context, which is why you look at context in the first place, keep in mind that the Colossians were tempted to believe in this sort of salad bar approach to truth, then we'll understand why, as Paul sort of begins to build his case for what the Colossian maturity should look like, why he starts his explanation of what it means to be mature, a mature Christian community with this epic anthem about Jesus. It is Paul's version of Handel's Messiah. It just sings. Um, the Colossians are tempted to view Jesus as one of the demigods. Remember sort of normal, everyday um, Colossian pagan culture is to view sort of these half-spirits, these elemental beings who kind of are go-betweens between heaven and earth. The, the temptation was for them to sort of lump Jesus in with that sort of broad, generic category. One mediocre God among many. One cool option among many. And if we're not careful, we can very quickly turn Jesus into a character like that. A demigod. One, one sort of great spiritual story among a lot of great stories about how to get back in relationship with God. Most people we encounter on our campus would probably say that all the spiritual paths end up leading to God, just like all roads led to Rome in the ancient world, right? That's what most conversations I have with students on campus. Um, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll admit their differences. Well, sure, there's, there's variety, but they're all good. They all end up in the same place. But Paul is really quick to correct that and to emphasize the uniqueness of Jesus. And so he begins his sort of protective correction of, for the church in Colossae with a reminder to them and to us of who Jesus is and what he pulled off. He writes this. Jesus Christ, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. 
He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. One of the first things that, that I really appreciate about, is that, about this text is that Paul openly admits that God is hard to see. That he's, in fact, invisible. Do any of you struggle with that? You ever wish God would just kind of show up in your world and just explain things clearly for once? I know I do. But I find it very comforting that the, that the man whose relationship with God, whose very real relationship with God, did so much to shape the life of the church for centuries to come, can so readily admit, yeah, I've never seen him. And Paul recognizes this conundrum we face. He's honest with us, which, which Scripture is so incredibly honest about the human condition, what it's like to walk in relationship with God. But that's why he brings Jesus into it. Jesus did exactly what so many of us have longed for. Jesus is the God who showed up. In our world, in real time, that's what Paul is getting at in the opening of this anthem. You want to know what God is like, Paul says? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact representation of God in the world. People could say, this is crazy to me. People could say to the early disciples, the original disciples, show me your God. And they could say, He's over there. <laughs> How cool is that? I like I liked Paul's use of the word image, too, because he's raising this idea of a mirror. It's as if God is around the corner, and because he's around the corner of a building, we can't see him. It doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It doesn't mean he's not real and he's not really there. But we can't see him because of our, our current physical experience, our location, our, our actual abilities. We can't see around the wall, so Jesus functions as a mirror at the corner where you see the exact representation of who God is because that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the image of what we can't see, and he's the exact complete picture of who God is. For those of you who wouldn't call yourselves Christians yet, but you are hungry to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God would respond in different situations, see how Jesus responds in different situations. If you're wondering, I don't know if I want to follow God, examine Jesus and see if you'd want to follow him because they are the same. Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. You're going to get a perfect picture of who he is when you look at Jesus. And that makes sense for what Paul says next. This same Jesus both created and is in charge of every single thing that exists. This, this dusty rabbi from Nazareth that Paul's talking about is the same one who is responsible for the creation of the universe. Now that is a little bit of a bizarre claim. Christians are kind of crazy. But we actually believe this. This has been the consistent claim of every Jesus follower since there started being Jesus followers. There's this great story in a couple of the Gospels about an experience in Jesus' life. And Jesus is in a boat with seasoned fishermen. A number of his disciples had been fi- were fishermen by trade. They, they knew what it was like to be on the open ocean. They knew how to ha- handle watercraft. And they knew what it was like to be in a storm. And a storm comes up. Jesus is tired. The dude is passed out on the floor. He's sleeping. And this storm comes up, and it is a legitimately lethal storm. So much so that these seasoned fishermen who know a storm and they see one shake Jesus by his clothes and say, Will you wake up? Your whole movement's about to end underwater. This, is, this is storm is the end of us. Get up and do something. Grab a bucket, man. 
And Jesus stands up and walks to the edge of the boat and tells the wind and the waves, be still. Calm down. Now, that's weird. Who walks on the edge of a ferry crossing to the San Juan Islands? Waves, stop splashing, please. Everyone looks at you and says, Right? Unless it happens. Unless the clouds roll back and the sea gets smooth. Translators reach for language to describe how calm the water was. One translation says, and the water reached a dead calm. Just glass. Now, these are good Jewish boys in this boat. They know Psalm 89. Psalm 89 says... You, O Lord, rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. I would have loved to see the picture of this boat. Jesus at one end, telling nature what's up. (laughs) And the rest of the disciples. I wonder when they were more scared. When they thought they were going to drown. Or when they realized, who is in our boat? Paul is making this point, this point that the Gospels affirm, that every Jesus story affirms. Jesus made it all. He handcrafted everything. Notice, too, how Paul mentions thrones, kingdom, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. It's a pretty interesting list. Why, of all the things Paul could say Jesus rules over, why does he mention this sort of list to the, to, to the Colossian church? Paul is an on-purpose writer. He could have grabbed any example, but he grabs what's tempting the Colossians. He grabs the demigods. He grabs sort of the the, the elemental spirits in in the universe, right? Think of what that would have done for the Colossians who are hearing this letter. They're in the middle of celebrating Jesus' power and his control over creation. And he says, Paul says, these spirits and demigods they thought had an important role to play in the universe. Paul says, nah. Those things are nothing compared to Jesus. In fact, they only exist because Jesus made them and he rules them a pretty effective method for deflating the competition. Don't you think? Paul's not interested in in sort of comparative analysis between Jesus and his competitors. He says Jesus is over it all. He's the supreme being of the universe. And frankly, it's true whether we buy it or not. It's the way of things. The question for us from this first part of the text, is what are we going to do about it? Is Jesus simply an impressive option among many impressive options? What influences you? What shapes what you believe and what you think and what you value and what you like? And where is Jesus in the stack of what determines the shape of your life? If my Jesus is small, then the things that compete for my allegiance to him are going to be evenly matched in my mind. Because Jesus ends up being just one helpful influencer among many. The question for us is, will you and I recognize him as the supreme being in all of the universe, which happens to include our own lives? 
Will you let him rule you? Will you let him boss you? Or are you still calling the shots in your life? There's a control tower in your head. Who's at the sticks? That's what Paul's asking. Well, then he moves. He moves on in his epic anthem. From the language of creation, he moves to the language of God's new creation people. He writes this, starting in verse 18. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. In the midst of the universe that Jesus is in charge over, he has defibrillated new life, a new version of humanity into existence. He has said, clear, boom, and a new way of being human has jumped up. And he calls this group of defibrillated people the church. I don't know if he knew the word defibrillated. Paul uses one of his favorite analogies when he's talking about the a Jesus community, a human body. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 really unpacks a lot more detail than he does in this text, but that's because his point in this part of the text is to emphasize Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, the head of this new people, which is his body. Think about what the head does for our bodies. Paul is not a random metaphor guy. He is very purposeful. He is super sophisticated. And so when he picks a metaphor, you've got to think, okay, what are the implications of that? What images come to mind when I think about that? In our own bodies, the head is the control tower for our movement. The center of our thought and willpower. The head's the leader of the mach- this sort of machine we call the human body. It tells my hands to move around. And if everything's working, they do. So far, so good. That's who Jesus is in this community of CCF. If he says jump, those of us who have attached ourselves to him say, how high? He is the leader of the Christian movements on this campus. He is the visionary, the director, the key strategist, and we are simply his implementers. We are simply uh, Christ's values animated. We are Christ's character and desires in motion, lived out day to day. That's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to aspire to. He kicked off the whole movement in the first place. Um, He's the beginning. He's the original, Paul says. He's the leader. He sets the pace. He's our template for how this new humanity is supposed to live together. And what is the ultimate mark of this new humanness? What is the crowning difference between who we used to be and who we are now? As human beings, if we have attached ourselves to Jesus, the answer is that death is no longer the end of our human story. Because it was not the end of His. Jesus was the first one to go through what will one day be the norm for all of God's people. The resurrection, death is not permanent for anyone who calls Jesus Lord and Savior or boss and rescuer. Which means that if the worst and sickest form of corruption in the human experience, which death is, 
Death is not a part of life. It was never meant to be a part of life. It is foreign. It is alien. When you recoil from death, you are acting like God. You say, that is, that is ugly. That should not be so. And if that has been beat by Jesus, then what can't he handle? If death has been overmatched, then what can't he take care of? What many versions of death that we experience in the here and now are outside of his ability to resurrect? Think about your own life. What do you think, what do you feel might be beyond his ability to take care of? Broken relationships. Broken homes. Financial fears. Fears about your future. Political chaos. Bombing victims in Boston. Shootouts with cops where a cop loses his life. What is out of his reach to tend to? What can he possibly be defeated by? Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough, clever enough, and generous enough to tend to what is wounding you personally now? He will comfort you. He will carry you. There is nothing that he cannot manage. Because he is first in everything. And he holds everything together. Now, why this description? Why does Paul take up sort of precious first century uh, parchment space in the ancient world to, to sort of detail out just how supreme Christ is? It's because of what he says next. To help us understand what Paul's doing here, I'm going to tell you two versions of the same story. You ready? Here's the first version. In 1996, a tan little seventh grade boy came in first place in the 110 meter hurdles at a junior high track meet. That's my story. It's not much to it. it, doesn't have much impact on your life, not a lot of drama. Not that big a deal, right? Here's the second version. That tan seventh grade boy was my younger brother JP. That's him. In his heyday, it's gotten worse since then. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's a junior high youth pastor in uh, Vancouver, Washington now, helping junior high students wrestle with, how do I follow Jesus when I'm going crazy? <laughs> but he was, he, that's, that's, who that's who the story's about. And he was born with clubbed feet, which meant that when he was, was first born, his feet were turned in and twisted up. The bones were screwy. And the doctor told my parents that he had done the best he could to surgically repair his feet and ankles. And that he was going to spend the next three months of his life in casts from his knees down. Little newborn babies in little casts. Both legs. And he said, I'm really sorry to tell you, but JP will never be able to play sports like other kids. Now, if any of you know my brother you know how that is not how it turned out to be. He is the finest soccer player in our family, and you will not tell him I said that. Kill the recording at that point. Pick it up now. No, it's true. 
But my dad took this picture of JP crossing the finish line in seventh grade in first place, and he mailed it overseas to the doctor. What he wrote on the back was, thank you. Now, understanding those details about my younger brother makes the fact that he crossed the finish line in first place way cooler, right? Yeah. The boy who was never supposed to play sports finishes a race in first place. Without understanding who JP was, the fact that he won a race in seventh grade doesn't matter a whole lot. Here's why I tell you these two versions of the same story. A couple of weeks ago, the church, the new, this new community of human beings, the new community of people all over the world celebrated Good Friday. It was the day that, this, that Jesus of Nazareth, our founder, was sentenced to death by the religious authorities of his day and crucified by the Roman imperialists outside Jerusalem. And the thing was, someone getting crucified outside of Jerusalem was really no big deal in the first century during the Roman occupation in Judea. It happened all the time. Judea was a known, volatile part of the ancient world, and Rome was ruthless at enforcing martial law. So a man getting crucified in Judea, wouldn't have made the headlines back in Rome. And the crucifixion scene would have been grisly and ghastly, but also normal for people to see living in Jerusalem at the time. But, what if you knew? What if you knew something special about that particular man getting crucified? What if you knew what Paul knew when he wrote this letter? What if you knew that this man, crucified on a Friday evening, was the most powerful being in all the universe? What if you knew that it was God himself hanging and bleeding and suffocating to death on that cross? This Jesus, this perfect God revealer, this creator and Lord of everything, And this leader of the new humanity. The way humanity was always supposed to be. And what if you knew that he was hanging there, struggling for breath for you? Paul says in verse 19, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything on heaven and on earth. This includes Oh, sorry. He made peace with everything on heaven and earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and behavior. This is our story. We were his enemies because of our evil behavior. Every single person in this room has done things, terrible things. To make us his enemies. And rightly so. Because you ask any parent the fastest way to get on their bad side. You mess with my kids. Human beings are described in scripture as the image bearers of God. As the lookalikes of God. We look like him. We are his children. We are his offspring. And just look at what we do to each other. 
Think about how our first instinct is so often selfish and self-preserving. Even towards the people we love. Think of how many times we use God's other lookalikes, His image bearers, His kids for our own satisfaction. That we fool around with each other sexually. Where we laugh at other people so that we feel better about ourselves. Where we twist the truth to make ourselves look a little bit better. Of course we would be his enemy. From the way we've treated the rest of his kids. That is what our choices have earned. Now I want to pause here for just a minute. Because there's a chance that this is the first time that you've heard about this. Maybe you're here tonight, and you're just checking this Jesus thing out. And this is the first time that you have heard that the, the reason, the cause of this great emptiness inside of you is because you are not right with God. You're at odds with the one who made you. How could that possibly be a comfortable situation? It makes perfect sense why you feel that way. Others of you here tonight are fully aware that you are screwed up. Many of you are already Christians who readily admit it. We know we're sick. We know we live in a screwed up world and that our relationship with God is wrecked because of the things we've done. Verse 22 is for everyone who knows that. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is why Jesus died. When our evil thoughts and actions made us his enemies, then we fully deserve to be treated as rebels and insurrectionists. Insurrection in the ancient world was punishable by death. Traitors are executed. And rightly so. That's what we deserve as enemies. But the reason Jesus died 2,000 years ago was because he offered himself to be executed in my place for my insurrection and for you and yours. And if Jesus really is, this is crazy, if Jesus really is the exact representation of God on the earth, then what that means is, is that God would rather punish himself then see you come to any permanent harm. He would rather die than have you stay his enemy. Did you know that about God? Did you know that about the Judeo-Christian message? Did you know that that's what Jesus was like? And if you did, do you remember? Because that's what he did. And then after dying, after he died, he showed that even death has a master. Even the greatest loss loses. And out of Good Friday comes Easter. Out of a tomb comes the firstborn over death. The first in a line of promised resurrections. This is terrific stuff like a fairy tale except it's true it's real this actually happened it's playing out in the universe right now it's playing out in our community on this campus right now jesus 
is alive. And I know it's true because I talk with him. And there are people in this room who have conversed with him. The living, still active leader. How do we respond to this? It's a good thing. Paul tells the Colossians how they're supposed to respond. After reminding them of what Jesus did for them, Paul explains that the correct response is one of faith. It's believing. It's trusting God that this is real. That this is actually the way of things. Verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and to stand firmly in it. Don't drift. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. This good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. For those of us who already consider ourselves Jesus followers, the correct response to who Jesus is and what he's done is to stay faithful. If you already consider yourself a Christian, like most of the people in the church at Colossae would have, would have said, then Paul says, keep it up. Continue. Don't falter now. Hang on to your faith. Hang on to your loyalty to Jesus. Take a good grip on His supremacy in your life and in our community. Or for those of you here, and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself Christians yet, you're still in explore mode, which is what CCF is for. But you find something stirring in you that you want to respond to the kind of God, to the kind of boss, to the kind of leader who would rather be tortured to death than see you come to any real harm. If you're there and you say, I want in. I want a piece of this. I want to attach myself to the only being in the universe who can axe death. I want to attach my life to the only one who offers an actual new way of living and the power to do it. If that's you, then you have the same response as if it's just the very first time. You have faith for the first time. So whether we are believing it for the first or the 5,000th, the correct response is, I believe, I buy this, and I will build my life on it. I will stand firmly on it. Not Jesus among many gods, but Jesus the supreme. Jesus the only, the only source of truth. That's what we're called to continue in, to be established and firm, not moved, not easily shifted by, a, by, by competing versions of what might be true. Believe it's true and build your life on it. This wonderful message that we have heard. This good news is that God has made a way for us who were once his enemies, who were once opposed to him, who were once working against him, to become his kids again. To get welcomed back into the family. And that way, that access, that solution, is for us to receive what Jesus Christ offers every single person who's ever lived, which certainly includes you and me. The question is, can you believe it? Will you believe it for the rest of your life? The creator of the universe was crucified for you. I think it would be good to think, as the worship team comes up, to think of responding in sort of three different ways. Maybe you fit into one of these categories. Some of you here tonight, 
you know that God is inviting you into a new relationship with Him for the very first time. You know that you're not right with Him because of some of the choices you've made. And tonight you're ready to receive Jesus' gift, His execution in your place so that you can live from now on with Him in charge. If that's you, then sometimes it helps to actually do something about it. You can sit in your chair and say, yep, that's me. Or you could put feet to it. You could act out your standing on it, and you could stand. And you could walk out, this is what I now believe. This is what I choose to build my life on. And you could walk down, and we will pray for you. We will not let you leave here by yourself, feeling like you've made a decision all by yourself. You've got to now kind of work through, think through, and process. No, no, no. When you come into Jesus, it's never this one-on-one, me and Jesus. You enter a family, we will take care of you. We will pray for you. Come forward if that's you. When we start singing, you come forward and say, that's me. I went into this family. I need Jesus to fix me up. I will, pray for me now. Or do something of that for variation. For others of us, we may be going through a significant and legitimately difficult time. Or someone you know is really suffering. For whatever reason, you need someone to pray with you. Down here, up front, to remind you that God is in the business of resurrection. That death, pain, and mourning are not permanent. They are very real. They are not pretend. And it's not something you just shoo away. But they are not permanent. Come on down so someone can pray for you too. For the rest of us, if we don't fit into those two categories, then we sing. Then we sing and we thank Him. We thank Him in whatever way we can think of. Remember what He's done for you and sing your hearts out in thanksgiving for His death in your place and the promise of life forever, even though we die. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to respond to what your, your word has stirred in us. Lord, we pray that you would be mixing things up in our minds and our hearts, reorganizing us to who you are. We pray that you would bless the way we respond. Give us courage to put into action what we actually believe is true. And as we pray for each other, Spirit, would you fill us, would you give us the, the, the motive, the juice to actually pull this new life off. We love you, Lord, and we depend on you to continue showing up tonight. Amen.